Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. You know, a couple of days ago, I um, I went into my store because I kind of have to learn how to cook again as soon as my arm's going to get back in good health. And uh, I just noticed how prices on everything have increased there. Like all the food products, about 20%. Now, I've spoken to you about the incoming food crisis and what I know about this a while ago. And it was only insofar as the grain shortages themselves go because planting is not going on in Ukraine and Russia right now. And what exists is not being exported anywhere. But then I wanted to look into the subject a bit deeper. It got quite scary. So um, I have here invited as an expert of this subject, Miss Daniela from our friends of the Red Line podcast. Because she tells me she has quite a lot of information that uh, you should probably be concerned about. Hi, Daniela. Hi, comrades. It's Daniela here. <laughs> I am really delighted to be on the show. You missed last time when Perry was here, yeah. Yeah, I know. I was having difficulties with my headphones, but we're back. <laughs> yeah, so uh, could you please tell us how exactly do you know about the food crisis and, and, and what, what are your sources and what's your relation to all this? That's probably going to happen very soon. Yeah, so um, I'm a geopolitical risk analyst with a global renewable energy company. So I've been quite busy <laughs> this year. Um, I also am a senior researcher with the Redline podcast, a good friend of this show, and I specialize in the Balkans and Central Asian politics. So um, they're two regions that have been quite greatly affected by what's been going on in Russia and Ukraine. But yeah, mainly my day job is to do geopolitical risk analysis. And that was quite difficult on the onset of the invasion as um, we weren't really sure how food supplies were going to be. We knew they were going to be negatively affected. Um, but now that it's been over 100 days of war, we're kind of seeing the ramifications. And we have been for a while, but now we can kind of map out and do a bit of predictive analysis going forward. I know that Ukraine is one of the leading well, used to be one of the leading food exporters uh, in the world, and their own claim that they're the breadbasket of Europe is, well, definitely is worth thinking about. And Russia also exports a lot of wheat, but it's not just wheat, is it? What are other foodstuffs that these countries, Russia and Ukraine, normally would export that are not getting exported besides wheat? I know it's sunflower oil, but, uh, you know, maybe something else. Yeah, and also corn as well. That's a, um, a massive one. But yeah, so they export wheat, corn, also fertilizer is a massive one as well. And the products that are needed for fertilizer um, and that in turn affects cropping harvest across the world too. So yeah, there's quite a bit that they both export. I think that's the first thing to think about and how important they are for the food system. I think cumulatively, they um, export about one third of global wheat exports. So quite big. Yeah, one third is, uh, is huge. What's the percentage of fertilizer? I know that Belarus has their Kalipark sodium thing, I guess. Potassium, sorry. Belarus also is huge in fertilizer in Russia, especially. So what are their shares, market shares of fertilizer of Belarus and Russia? Yeah, Belarus is a big fertilizer export. Russia is the biggest. And then I know China also, they have enough to sustain themselves domestically, but they also export fertilizer too. So it's them, but then also Brazil. Um, I'm just trying to look at my notes now to see the specific percentages. 
Yeah, so so this isn't necessarily related, but it is. Before the conflict, fertiliser prices were already up two times before the war, but now they're up four times. So it's quite significant. Yeah, as I understand, and this kind of stunned me because when you do some historical research about agriculture, which I've obviously done, you kind of learn that, oh, crop rotation was important. And then you understand that we haven't actually used crop rotation in a long while since we discovered how fertilizer actually works, which has allowed us to basically ruin our soils everywhere to just be monoculturally single planting everything. So turns out we're extremely more reliant on chemical fertilizers than uh, I think average person even thinks about. Yeah, it's not something that's at the forefront of your mind. Everyone kind of, when there is increase in fuel prices or food, um, it's kind of an easy, people understand where that comes from, but you don't necessarily understand the link between fertilizers and crops and the economy and all of that. So definitely, I think we're entering some dire straits because of the fertilizer crisis. Yeah, but you know, how bad is it going to get? We are already seeing the, the price increases, at least even here in Latvia. You're from Australia. So could you please maybe talk about how bad is it going to get? What are we looking at? And, and is there anything else maybe besides fertilizer and, and food shortages that are going to cause us a lot of issues? So to start off with, I think it's important to, again, circle back to the effects of the wheat isn't being exported because that in turn affects fertiliser. So a lot of countries who do export wheat, there was a lot of discussion about, well, maybe they can export and make up for the commodities that are stuck in the Black Sea ports or in the Black Sea region in general. But actually for a lot of these countries, especially in Latin America, um, who do export wheat, they're also equally as reliant on fertiliser, which means that they can't produce the crops necessary to make up for the wheat shortages. So then I think Peru is a really good example. Um, You recently saw like the farmers go on strikes because of high inflation and high fuel prices, which was in turn affecting their harvest. And then they had a series of protests that turned violent. And then now the agriculture exports are being affected by these supply chain disruptions. Equally, you had Argentina. So the hiked prices were on the one hand, beneficial to Argentine growers as their products were potential alternatives to Russia and Ukraine, but then the high price of fertiliser narrowed their margins. So even so, you see some countries kind of equaling out to be net neutral and other countries net negative because of the high, because if, especially if they're low to middle income countries, they're more vulnerable to these increasing food and fuel prices. So it's kind of having a cascading effect. And then you also see in Central Asia as well, but we can probably go into Central Asia a bit later. Yeah, just mentioning Asia, one of the worst things that are happening right now, and in part because of all this is, well, you just have to Google up Sri Lanka. Normally, most people anywhere else don't think about Sri Lanka, but what's happening there is that their economy, already after COVID and terrible mismanagement of everything, and now this war is driving their economy to shambles, basically, and they won't be bailed out this time because they already were bailed out in 2016 by International Monetary Fund. This might actually really cause massive unrest and, and, and demonstrations and starvation in specifically developing countries. And this is kind of interesting because in Sri Lanka, specifically, because that's the major hotspot now, and uh, a lot of people presume that Pakistan is going to be next, by the way. Um, in Sri Lanka, it's interesting how their government tried to basically forbid all pesticides or fertilizer things that they would be fully switching to biological stuff so they didn't even produce stuff for themselves but yeah if you, if you look at these places then then wow i mean what is going to be the hardest hit countries i mean it's going to be north africa it's going to be central asia like everyone's going to get hit but where where's going to get really tragic it's a good question um i think if we look at the direct impacts from shortages of wheat imports, for example, um, for some countries. I think we look at Tunisia and Egypt. I think they used to import about 70 to 80 percent of their wheat came from Russia and Ukraine. So that's quite significant. Same as Lebanon. I think Lebanon goes down to about 60 percent. But all these countries are already grappling with severe like political crises and then compounded with food insecurity. It's just not going to bode well, especially in Tunisia's case. That's where the Arab Spring started because of the price of eggs. And then you've got the effects of climate change. Another hard-hitting country is Yemen. Yemen's been in war for seven years, but even prior to that, they were kind of embroiled in a civil conflict. They've been regarded as like the greatest humanitarian crisis of our decade. And then now with the price of wheat going up, it's just compounding that even more. And on top of that, um, the UN actually didn't receive 88% of the funding it requested to respond to these hunger issues. So 
there's a lot of issues going on there. And then you've also got Central Asia as well. So Kazakhstan is kind of like the linchpin in Central Asia for a lot of different reasons. But in terms of wheat and food products, um, it's a big grain exporter to the other Central Asian countries and it also imports from Russia. And so in April, it put a two-month ban on its export of wheat to the rest of the region. And this is quite significant because a lot of the other countries heavily depend, like I said, on Kazakhstan. And I think on the 15th is when they're going to reassess whether or not they extend that ban. And so from then on, we'll be able to see what the effects would be. But I think in the Central Asia's case, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan are probably the most vulnerable. Kyrgyzstan specifically because it's already a cash-strap government has fewer resources to pay for more expensive alternative sources of supplies. So that's posing multiple risks to the country's future stability. Like economically motivated protests are quite common in Kyrgyzstan. They've had like national revolutions. They've had about four national revolutions. That's definitely something to keep an eye on. I think even after the CSDO summit that happened in May, Japardov came out and said that Kyrgyzstan's wheat imports would decrease by I think 30 to 40 percent this year. Um, and then after the summit as well, they noted how they're still grappling with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And now they're having border, well, they've always had border conflicts with Tajikistan, but they're increasing. And then Tajikistan's got all these issues as well with Ghana Badakhshan and then also more ISIS-K developments too. And then now on top of this, looking at a really, really severe food crisis. Um, and then even other countries that you might think would be more insulated from protest activity like Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, like food crises have spurred protests in those countries as well. So that region is looking particularly vulnerable too. Like I was saying as well with Latin America, we already saw some food-related protests in Peru and these countries as well are really vulnerable to the effects of climate change, which again, is just going to have further (laughs) cascading effects and they're kind of the most directly impacted but then those countries will affect the countries around them they'll affect countries here like us in Australia it's just we're only just seeing the beginning of what the effects would actually be and it's quite concerning (laughs) like you said very depressing this is the part of the show where I feel it's quite uh, quite appropriate to say that shit we're fucked (laughs) that's kind of an appropriate response to all this situation I suppose I believe that a lot of countries have their own reserves but I was kind of surprised about that my own country only has about reserved for about like six months at best. If anything goes terribly wrong, what's the situation in other countries? I mean, okay, sure, the developing world is going to get hit terribly. That'll cause massive refugee crisis and total instability everywhere and disrupt global trade a lot. But most of my listeners are in the United States. So what's their situation? How long can they last without you know any imports? In this case, I'm talking about more fertilizer than wheat because... I, I bet that the United States could produce their own stuff easily. With um, wheat, they do have significant reserves, but I don't know if that's enough to support the global um, needs. As for fertilizer, the way that fertilizer works is you can you can produce it by other chemicals and products. It's similar to how you you need LNG. Sorry for it. Sorry, LNG. Yeah, so gas. Liquefied natural gas or something. Yeah, yeah. so um, you can make fertiliser with LNG, like nitrogen fertilisers is what they're called. We're already looking at producing that in countries like Qatar, Egypt and Saudi Arabia who are already top producers of nitrogen fertilisers and probably the ones that are most likely to be best positioned to fill the supply of gas that's left by Russia. So we've got two kind of converging positives there, but still it's quite a long way away from that being developed and um, they're quite carbon intensive industries as well. So interestingly enough, all this sort of depends on the war actually ending and and systems being restored back in order. I suppose that this is why the sanctions are so great and this is why people are actually supporting Ukraine so so much. Yeah, it's something interesting came through though. I think you tweeted it today, but Russian media said earlier this week that Russia and Turkey were looking at creating a potential maritime grain exports corridor from Odessa port in Ukraine to Turkey's Bosphorus Strait. I think it should be prefaced that like any deal that's put forward by Russia isn't worth the paper it's written on. But And there hasn't been any corroboration of this plan from other sources. But it could change by the time this podcast comes out or by the next week, who knows. But I think that would be a significant development because it would mean that Ukraine could resume some of its exports. And I think agriculture products would most likely be prioritised here. But I don't want to be too hopeful on that. What do you think about that development? 
there's the issue that in their talks, one of the things that Russia demands is that they state that Ukraine cannot export its grain, not because Russia is blockading the port, but because, oh, look, there are so many sea mines in the in the port. So, you know, it's not safe for civilian ships to leave it. So, you know, you just destroy all the mines in the port and, and then we will ensure 100% that uh, all the civilian ships with, with the grain can just, you know, leave leave as usual. And the problem is that currently, if you make a deal with Russia that they absolutely promise not to invade when you have removed all the mines from your port, <laughs> uh, if they're so specific about this, then you probably know that they are intending to do something if, if it comes to this. Yeah, exactly. Or even just um, cargo vessels unintentionally being ta- not targeted, but running into drifting sea mines. It's, there's huge risks. And even on the on the land routes, the Russians have captured a lot of Ukrainian grain and just you know basically stolen it as well. Yeah, that's been confirmed now by some satellite imagery, which was great that that's we've kind of got confirmation on that. Yeah, you know, this is kind of kind of difficult for me because I also sometimes when, when I make my news shows, uh, I have some info and then I have to wait until someone you know confirms it with some picture or something. Mm. I get to mention it in, as someone told me that this is happening, but. It is. If you want to draw really massive attention to some issues, you have to get some hard evidence. And hard evidence in this case is really terrible because when I was in Ukraine, they're understood because Latvia is, is super foresty. But when I was in Ukraine, I saw all their all their wheat fields, and it's kind of crazy because it's kind of like looking at the ocean, except it's just one huge stretch of arable land, it's just fields never ending in a straight line. Look at the one direction, it's all the fields and everything. And they're not being worked on and there's tanks on them. So that kind of leads into what I wanted to say that there has been this propaganda, like disinformation narrative that Russian diplomats and pro-Kemlin media outlets are trying to spread that, you know, the reason we have this food crisis is because of the international sanctions against Russia. But, and I think on the surface, it's quite a compelling narrative to believe, especially considering that there is a lot of widespread anti-Western sentiment, large parts of the world. But also like the topic of sanctions for a lot of people appears quite boring and equally complicated and convoluted. Um, so it's quite easy to blame the West. But yeah, exactly as you said, the reason for the food crisis is because Russia has been blockading Ukrainian exports. They've been stealing grains. They've been deliberately targeting a lot of farms and transportation infrastructure. And then also there's a labor shortage in Ukraine as well. And and not even to say that, that none of the sanctions you didn't target agricultural products. There's even exemptions for them. So I think it's good now that the EU is being quite vocal about this and trying to stop the spread of this narrative because it's quite damaging. And interestingly, I'm seeing it in a lot of Chinese media as well, um, Indonesian media too, and that's having um, kind of geopolitical consequences within those regions too. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. What's the most interesting part is that, like you said, the food exports from Russia even aren't sanctioned. Russia could export a lot of their grain. However, they themselves have uh, basically cut down on exports massively. They, I think they blocked exports for a huge while as well. They call it the counter sanctions. So right now, Russia is just, you know, not giving anyone anyone grain. 
Yeah, exactly. But you mentioned China there, and I heard that China has been stockpiling grain massively. I read in one source that they have about 50% of world's grain reserves. And the question in everyone's mind is, does it seem likely that they'll use it as a political tool to influence, say, African countries with zero food reserves like Ethiopia, for example? Or will they need it for their own consumption? And how likely is it that China is going to step in and be a big savior because of their reserves? Well, China has isn't immune to having done that in the past, so I think we can't rule it out. Um, but I think, by and large, they're definitely going to first want to be self-sufficient, and I think that would be their first priority. And then if they've got extra reserves, I think it's without question that they'll try and project their force externally that way, especially like you had the Kenyan government come out to the cooperation of Russia stealing grains from Ukraine, them saying, well, we don't really want to moralize this issue. Like we need it and we don't really care where it comes from. So you've got a lot of countries that aren't really basing their foreign policies off values. Like we are here in the West, in Australia specifically. So I think that's definitely possible. But for the time being, I think they're going to be prioritizing self-sufficiency, self-reliancy, especially because they've just come out of their um, COVID lockdown. So they've got a lot of domestic issues that they need to sort out first. Well, talking about Australia, I recently happened to watch one of the videos on on various YouTube channels that I uh, follow about how Australia is actually one of the largest wheat producers in your region as well. Only about 6% of Australia's land is arable. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so much of that land that you have there that, that it's, it's pretty big as well. And I, I understood that Australia's issue is the fact that you really lack rivers. Like your biggest river is actually not that big. So you have those issues. Do you have any plans in Australia to maybe, maybe increase your own wheat production and, and kind of support other countries? Because, you know, whomever starts producing wheat right now is probably going to get quite rich. Yeah. So the latest reports I read that the wheat... Um, harvest for this year is going to increase, like our production is going to increase by 0.9%. So while that's good, it's not great and the world can't rely on an extra 0.9%. Um, so unfortunately, I don't think it's the be all and end all. I think we are well positioned to kind of benefit from exporting our wheat. But like I said, we've still got a lot of issues here domestically. We're, we're quite affected by some flooding recently and that affected a lot of food supplies here, like interstate, and how it was packaged and the difference between, you know, large companies and smaller grocers and butchers and everything. So the trends that I'm seeing is that a lot of countries are looking inwards and trying to stockpile for themselves. And then they're not really looking outwards and trying to see how they can affect the more vulnerable countries. And personally, I think that's a bit of a mistake because as we've seen with the pandemic, if it, something major is affecting one country, it's going to reverberate across the region and across the world. So so to answer your question, we are, I think, well positioned to benefit from this, but it's not the saving grace of this crisis, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's that's one of the issues. See, Ukraine and Russia sold their grain to all these developing countries, not because they were super kind and nice. It's because, well, richer countries uh, didn't need this wheat. But now, as we're going to see kind of food shortages everywhere, the farmers are first going to supply the markets with the largest prices. So... Even if, like, Latvia is pretty self-sufficient because our population is super tiny. There are about only 2 million of us. We're as big as the Benelux countries, approximately, you know, because uh, Netherlands is about one half of Latvia. So we could technically sustain ourselves, but it kind of seems to me that our farmers, the wheat that we're going to produce, it's probably going to go to some Western countries, more, more stuff together with everything. The developing countries are going to get the short end of the stick either way because, hey, they're going to have to pay for it somehow. Yeah, like I was saying before, like Yemen's a perfect example. They didn't receive 88% of the funding. They said they needed to respond to the hunger crisis there. So, and I'm not saying that funding in international institutions is perfect because there's lots of corruption and misappropriation of funds, but that's already showing that there isn't really political will to respond to these crises. So I hate to be quite depressing on your show, but I just don't see that we're going to adequately address the countries that specifically require extra assistance. Like I said, it's going to be low to middle income countries that, you know, with the price of bread increasing. So there's been historical examples of that leading to uprisings and then compounded by climate change issues. It's just, it's not looking good. (laughs) Food shortages lead to uprisings and uprisings lead to refugee crises and radical regimes coming to power in places with food shortages. Mm -hmm. We have seen that time and time again, that one massive food shortage and then if if your country isn't super stable then a lot of issues happen in future european countries think that they're going to get away scot-free because they have more money than everyone else 
Well, guess where the Tunisian refugees are going to go? Exactly. If people are super desperate and they can't get food in their own homes, well, of course, they're going to, if the situation gets really bad, then we're going to see more migrant boats trying to cross over Mediterranean into EU, for example. Yeah, and then that becomes politicized and creates additional burdens on host countries. And Lebanon's a good example of that as well. So Lebanon was already dealing with the like the Syrian crisis, and then a lot of refugees and displaced people came from there, and then that put in a burden on their electrical um, grid system. And then now they also, sorry, imported a lot of wheat, so now they're having food security issues. Um, and that's also another country that will be negatively affected and will affect its neighboring countries. Yeah, and this is... You know, actually quite scary, because if you think about it, the only place that probably won't get impacted super horribly is Antarctica, only because there are so few people actually living there. (laughs) Only researchers or something. But even then. Exactly. (laughs) And this is besides the fuel prices going up, Mm -hmm. which is also going to happen, because fuel prices have been increasing horribly for everyone. Just recently, it hit like over two euros per liter, yeah, which is about ten dollars per gallon. To my American listeners, when the Americans complain about five dollars per gallon, it's kind of yeah funny because it's double that here. That's why people everywhere else kind of drive less. But this also affects everything. Yeah, I would actually say um, based off the fuel issues, if it's possible, I think that we've seen like a major shift, obviously, away from Russian hydrocarbons, and I think. A potential silver lining is that this whole thing is kind of, might have facilitated an environment that accelerates both like a decrease in Russian hydrocarbons, but also pivot towards green renewable energy. But just in the interim before getting there, we're going to have to do a lot of high carbon intensive um, trade and infrastructure development and all of that. But I do think that that's a potential positive out of everything. Well, I suppose so. But the negatives heavily outweigh everything that's happening on right now. One thing is that if this conflict continues, we're going to see much more intense activity in other regions because already what happened was the fact that the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict got settled in like April and no one even noticed. Azerbaijan just took over it. And Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I saw it as a headline in like two news outlets, and then I spoke about it on my show when Azerbaijan just waltzed in, and when the Russians protested, they were like, yeah, what you're going to do about it? So that happened. And I think that, that for example, people forget that um, the countries down there uh, on the southern, like Central Asian region, they're not exactly stable. And with Taliban running Afghanistan, they could cause a lot of issues around there as well, because Russia was sort of the guarantor of the security over there. and. Um, One, Russia's military turning out not to be as strong as everyone thought. And two, Russia pulling their forces off from everywhere to fight in Ukraine means that there are fewer poorly armed soldiers to basically stop Taliban if they are going to go on a nice little rampage in the surrounding countryside. Yeah, and I also think just to add to that, so the Taliban said when they came to power that they would make sure that there would be no sort of military incursions into any of the Central Asian countries. But we've seen the prevalence of ISIS-K in the northern parts of Afghanistan. They said that they launched missiles into Uzbekistan, a bunch of uncorroborated reports as to whether or not it actually landed or whatever, but it just showed their intent on targeting Uzbekistan. They also, there were some skirmishes with some Tajik border guards in the region there. And so if the Taliban can't, you know, establish control in the northern regions as well, that's going to affect the Central Asian countries. And then there's a lot of questions exactly like you said, if Russia can't be the security guarantor anymore, Do they turn towards each other? Do they turn towards China? Does China take more of a security approach in Central Asia? Um, 
would that lead to more competition? You know, what's going to happen there? So we're seeing lots and lots of geopolitical like situations at the moment being affected by this. Yeah, one of the one of the more interesting parts is uh, about the very first subject that I was on your show about uh, Transnistria, because currently the hopes are that after this war ends, then maybe Moldova could just walk in there, grab grab that territory back from because Transnistria is basically Donbas except for Moldova. Best case scenario is that Moldova reabsorbs Transnistria and then they hold a nice little referendum and join back with Romania, which is what most people there would probably want. At least that's what I've got from questions on the internet. As far as I know, about 40% of Moldovans already have Romanian citizenship, including their president and prime minister. The only reason why Moldova hasn't rejoined Romania, because they really wanted to, is because of Transnistria and their issues. Yeah, sorry, this is a bit of a Latin note, but even Moldova's Eurovision song was kind of giving a subtle nod to reunification. Yeah, I actually like Moldova's song. A lot of people that I... That Me I... too, it was really good. <laughs> yeah, this is Did good. You not, wait, do you say so other people didn't like it? Yeah, a lot of people over here uh, didn't like Moldova's song that much. But again, this year's Eurovision was all about with how many votes Ukraine is going to win, which is quite natural, mm. <laughs> yeah, as expected, because Eurovision is, is weird like that. But you basically watch it for the insanity. Yeah, it's always political. And it always has been. This is one of the big issues because yeah. currently you can you can spot that the people that say that art should be political. No, it absolutely should. It's what, it's what it's supposed to do. But like getting back to depressing subjects. Okay, I, I presume that we in Latvia are not going to starve, except the poorer families. And most of EU is going to be pretty much okay. We're not going to do expensive things and not going to you know consume other less important goods, but we're not going to starve. It's not going to be very comfortable. What kind of price increases are we looking at? Do we even have predictions on how much any, like all the prices can actually rise around the world globally on everything? No, I don't have specific numbers. I just know that, like I said, fertilizers already increased four times since the war. Um, and like, there's no indication that fuel would subside. So, so we're not looking at 20 to 30% increase. We're looking at four to five times times increase. We're looking at hundreds of percents. We're already there with fertilizer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the documentaries that I saw is like a lot of people have commented, well, slightly people who don't understand what they're actually talking about is if Africa is so reliant on Ukrainian and Russian grain, why didn't they plant their own? Well, this is your answer. They did, except that a lot of Africa isn't exactly super fertile and they use fertilizer. With fertilizer getting ridiculously more expensive, they're at a loss if they even try to you know, produce enough grain. They have to buy a lot of fertilizer and it's just super expensive, so they can't afford it. They can't afford to farm there. Yeah, and like, like I was saying, there was um, there was a big drought last year as well that affected a lot of North African countries and they're expected to increase as well, like a lot of climate change um, related issues. So that obviously affects the viability of your land, whether or not you can harvest anything. And then on top of that, you've got other security issues with rebel groups and um, controlling parts of land. So it's just it's a real hodgepodge <laughs> of confounding um, yeah, insecurities. Well, I... Talking about climate change, that's at least one silver lining for me, at least, because we in the Baltics look to be, if global temperatures rise, then we in the Baltics look to be among the global winners of all this situation, because we're not going to get that flooded. We're going to lose just a bit of land because we're super insular and, and like Baltic seas and that connected to everything. Denmark's going to be pretty ruined, but if predictions stay correct, we're going to have basically French climate what France has now which is pretty ridiculous because we're obviously going to get a ton of migrants then. But uh, yeah, that climate change issue, it's also been like compounding everything. I know that Kiribati and other smaller countries are just going to disappear if everything stays the same. So that's also bizarre. Yeah, even um, Indonesia, who's hosting the G20 summit, their capital, Jakarta, is being moved to a place in Kalimantan. I can't remember the name of the city now, but that's it's to do with a lot of factors, but climate change is a big one as well. So... so- we're looking at a century over here that's going to not turn out to be peaceful and nice and happy, as everyone predicted at the end of the last one. We're looking at insane amounts of challenges, global crises. Now we have a war. If this food crisis hits particularly hard, we're going to look at more wars all over the planet. Because those things tend to happen when people are poor and angry. You're desperate. You've got nothing to lose. If, it's, if you can't feed your family and you see that your government profiting off maybe whatever resources you have, but it's not being trickled down to you or your family aren't um, getting the benefits of that, you're going to be quite angry. 
And and like you said, the worst part about it is that like me me and you, we, we can't do anything about it. <laughs> I don't know. You have to be Elon Musk or Bill Gates or something. We, we I guess we kind of have to put our hopes on the ultra rich that they would do something about it. But not like they can even do that much in this case. They could I don't know start massive fertilizer factories and profit from it. You know, Warren Buffett would probably see this as a great investment, but doesn't really look that hopeful. I think as I was alluding to before, I think governments and organizations within the private sector should be working together and look more outwards and not just inwards. And Because you did see a lot of, you know, resource nationalism and all of that will increase as well now that at the demand for um, alternatives to Russian gas is increasing. No one country can replace that. But I think if we all like would work together and look for solutions that like collaborative ones and not be so isolationist, that could potentially be a good thing. But again, on an individual level, there's not much. Maybe we can try and consume less, be better for the environment. But if you don't have the means to, like that's a quite, if you're in a comfortable position, it's easier to consume less. But um, that's not possible and that's not the reality for a lot of people. Instead of actually trying to solve the food crisis, the ultra-rich are busy minting NFTs or something. <laughs> exactly. I just wanted to talk about one thing. You know, I was talking about kind of the transition to the green economy and everything. I do want to say that there is also another dark side to that. <laughs> um, another one, if you could believe. But um, so there's been a lot of talk specifically within my organization about the potential for green hydrogen, which apparently now is like the most viable substitute for like the transition fuel, which is nat- natural gas, um, but it's also like fit for purpose to store energy, which is a critical point of discussion for a lot of countries right now. And you're seeing countries like South Africa and Namibia getting a lot of funding from Germany to increase this. Um, and so that's all positive. But within that industry, um, the solar industry, sorry, within a whole renewable um, transition is particularly vulnerable because one um, sort of ingredient or I don't know what the word is, like something, the thing that you need that's critical for the solar industry is something called polycycline. Um, and about 45% of the world's supply of that comes from China's Xinjiang region. And then we on the Red Line did a big episode about rare earths, but specifically the solar industry. Um, so you're going to run into more human rights issues there, like modern slavery, human trafficking risk, obviously. No, this is a bit controversial to say, but more evidence is coming out of what's going on in that region. So as we do look towards renewables, that is kind of like the dark side of it as well, that a lot of specifically the solar industry is reliant and a lot of people's supply chains do originate from this part of the world. You know, as much as everyone likes to go green, remember that all your batteries contain lithium and lithium comes from extremely nice places known as lithium mines. And if you want to look at workers' conditions there, hmm. Oh, I think that, you know, we as a civilization, we're trying to move to some better sourced everything and we try to be ethical about it, but constantly we're just failing, which really kind of drove me into a bit of a bit of a sad thing was like, I watched the video and did some research about carbon, carbon credits. You know, you, you can like pay to offset your carbon footprint everywhere. And turns out a lot of these programs are just outright scams and don't work. And, and that's also quite sad. And they're not not valid and they're not really helping. Yeah, interesting. What um, examples were you reading where it said that? It was it was about the fact that a lot of these companies that basically preserve forests actually just own the forests and they just claim that, you know what, um, we're selling you carbon credits because we're not basically deforesting all this area ourselves. And some other areas have basically set up this forest preservation carbon credit uh, situations in places which already were protected, so they're not protecting anything. And then one major issue was with... Um, with the fact that a lot of people in India, there was, I forget the region's name, but it was one of the bigger kind of, where they were giving fuel efficient stoves to people because they basically just use still wooden logs to cook their own food on open fire. And they were given efficient stoves to basically lessen the amount of logs and, and forest that they burn. And that would have had an impact, except that when people were given those efficient stoves, they just used them as an extra and used even more wood for fuel. So there's a lot because all the people who invented this kind of carbon emissions reducing technology hadn't tested it in real life in real sociological examples. They had only stuck in their laboratory. And when they shifted from their one fire to this efficient stove, then it showed good results. But in real life, people just decided that, hey, if I use the same amount of wood, I can now cook twice more and twice faster. It's great. Yeah, and people like cooking with wood <laughs> as well. If we're going to go full depressive about world's economy and what's going to happen, it's going to Let's just get it out of our system. I hope I hope some some of our listeners are, are at least. Yeah, you know, it's not looking good. You no, know, I know I'm stockpiling on, on canned beans or something. Chickpeas as well. 
Yeah, love those. Just in case, I'd rather stockpile some stuff before it, before it starts costing me an arm and a leg or something. Mm, I think um, for us in Australia, we're seeing a lot of like meat and that those sort of products go up as well. Um, but sorry, you touched on something really interesting that I wanted to bring up as well, because it's something that I'm coming across to this sort of like greenwashing that companies are doing. They're saying that they're going to reduce their emissions by X amount, but that only like accounts for what they're doing on a certain project. It's not really their overall net output. And you see that with countries as well, like that they only say they're responsible for the pollution that they create within their own borders, but not for the pollution produced in the manufacturing of goods that are shipped to their like to other countries. And so then that falls on other countries who are consuming those goods. There's a lot of corruption and sort of virtue signaling within the industries themselves and the governments too. This virtue signaling stuff is, is also kind of getting on my nerves a lot because I even see this in Latvia and in a lot of countries because I've I've managed to travel around a lot this year. Uh, I've noticed that a lot of people also have just, you know, putting on Ukrainian flags in support of Ukraine, but when people do it to advertise themselves, and it's quite obvious that they don't, they don't care, really, that's also kind of miserable. Because in Latvia, we have um, we have a store that kind of basically stole the name of uh, the, this TV show, Orange is the New Black. Now they've changed their name to Ukrainian Flags, the New Black, and just market everything. And, and they, they got into a big scandal. It's just... Yeah, on the one hand, I think it's good. I, I don't want to undermine support, but on the other hand, I agree with you. And I think it's this weird sort of parasocial relationship that people have developed where they, you know, become five-minute experts because that means that gives them more followers, more power. Um, and so they're kind of profiting off a war, I guess. Well, at, at least I know on my show that I've been I've been warning about that this situation could happen a long time ago. So, uh yeah, exactly. Lots of Eastern Europeans and like you and the Baltics and Central Asian countries as well have been warning this for a really long time, but no one was listening. Yeah, and uh, this is also quite weird because one thing that really, really worries me in all this situation is that, for example, in France, Macron is constantly calling to make sure Putin doesn't lose face and stuff like that. Why would anyone care about that? Is, is Putin not losing face our main priority at this point? I mean, everyone, sure, is, is afraid of, of nuclear war, which is another interesting thing that I noticed today that Russian propaganda have upped their uh, intensity of you should totally prepare for a nuclear war in the past few days, which is scary. But, well, Putin has proven himself not to be exactly a rational agent lately. So to be honest, whether or not a nuclear war actually starts does not depend on anything West does. It depends on whether or not Putin has is in the mood of a nuclear war. And an interesting position about the situation is that maybe Putin has already ordered nukes to be launched, except that he was stopped and they didn't launch. We don't know that either. That's that's actually a quite realistic possibility. And we'll only find out about this after this whole mess ends. And it could go on for years, sadly. Although I personally predict that if everything goes by the best scenario, we could probably see an end to the Ukrainian war about at December at the earliest. An end to the war, do you mean, as in them them claiming, um, you know, Eastern Donbass and like all the Eastern regions? Would that be an end to the war, do you think? Them signing a peace treaty, if they go that route. Because, I don't know. And even if it ends in December, the effects are going to be felt for years now. It's going to be even worse next year, because right now there, there are, like, for example, wheat exports and wheat products, but they're not being able to be exported next year, there's going to be hardly any. And like you were saying, there's like a labor drain because there's already a labor shortage, but next year it's going to be even worse. In Ukraine, I mean. Well, on the bright side, on the bright side, if you look at this, I mean, once the war ends and a lot of men have died, Ukraine is going to look pretty, pretty hospitable and they will definitely have some good migration policies. I bet a lot of, we're going to see a lot of migrants from uh, North Africa and Middle Eastern countries like Syria going actually to Ukraine quite possibly, because there's going to be a lot of requirement for, for unskilled labor and like a lot of people who just need jobs to survive. And, you know, hey, they're, they're going to have a huge market opening in the agricultural sector, definitely. I bet you there's already companies traveling there and um, already trying to sign deals and saying, you know, we will help you rebuild and um, your infrastructure and all of that. There, there's definitely appetite for that. Well, on the other hand, um, one of the channels that I that I watched, the Economics Explained, said that maybe the world is in due time for an actual, you know, economic downturn because they act like, you know, like like bushfires. It sort of cleanses the land and weeds out the weaker players of the weaker companies. It's sometimes maybe necessary to renew all this situation for the global market to settle itself down instead of artificial propping up, except that those pains are going to be felt quite, quite terribly. 
Yeah, I think that's a very um, controversial take. <laughs> this is, but, you know, to prepare for this, I watched a lot of economy channels and this Australian guy told that it's sometimes necessary to have economic downturns to basically make sure that, you know, free market works as intended so that the least less successful companies kind of go bankrupt and more efficiencies gain at the end as a result. But that's another take from the, we only look at the little numbers on the sheet instead of actual people suffering kind of position so yeah because that's those people's livelihoods so i can see the argument i think i would disagree from the human rights perspective but yeah but you know what do you think china is gonna go like are, are we seeing some some global turmoil in, in kind of the global geopolitical situation do you think china is actually gonna use this to their own advantage and maybe you know influence something going on there because I'm looking at China as the major player here, and I keep returning to them because they seem to be the party that is among those most gain from all this conflict. Can we can we look at them kind of doing something big and, and changing how the world works? I'm cautious because I I come from Australia and there's a lot of like alarmist um, rhetoric around China, so I would kind of yeah I caution against that because I don't think the way that our relationship with China is very sustainable. Um, but that being said. It's hard to predict. I think the interesting thing for me that I'm watching with China is how their relationship with Russia evolves because now Russia is arguably more dependent on China. Um, and so I think you, you are going to see the frictions in their relationship bubble up soon. Obviously, they haven't condemned Russia. They've signed a bunch of agricultural agreements with them in February. Um, but I think there are obviously tensions in the relationship, but their views of the world are entirely different. They do have some converging interests. Like I said, I think in the theatre of the Indo-Pacific would be interesting and then also Central Asia too. I think the all these countries are going to be integrated into BRI projects soon enough. Um, they're already Central Asian countries, I mean, are talking, are discussing how you know they're going to export their electricity and also all their resources as well, because most of them go through Russia, but they're looking maybe potentially eastwards or southwards towards Iran and Afghanistan. And that's a whole whole other thing. It could be a whole episode in itself. But I think that would definitely be concerning Russia at the moment. So I think in the context of that relationship, that's interesting. And then obviously, you know, there's always going to be that competition with the US and within the Pacific countries as well. But you're seeing a lot of countries within the ASEAN um, alliance, they're more wanting more or less to be a neutral country. So they want relationships with the US, but then also China as well. They necessitate a lot of investment. So yeah, I think China would definitely be the one to watch, but I'm cautious on um, kind of being a bit alarmist and like that they're going to take over the world or something. Well, on the bright side, I watched a lot of Russian economists speaking about what's going to happen to Russian economy and the the kind of even partial oil embargo and, and with all the gas situation and with the, with the ships, that's going to hurt Russian budget a lot, like a lot, a lot, because a huge kind of source of income for their own economy. They're an export-oriented country, so that's primarily where they derive most of their um, income from. So yeah, that's definitely, it's going to harm them for sure. They export raw materials, but they're extremely reliant on Western technologies and imports in other kind of spheres. I, it was like Russia was about 70% import reliant on specifically technology markets. What they have been doing recently is, for example, in their automotive industry, when they build their cars and commas and, and Avtovaz and all these factories, the government of Russia has already stated that they uh, are lowering the the ecology and safety standards. They're now going back to Euro Zero, which means that they're trying to sell cars without a lot of safety features, like without airbags and all this stuff, because they don't have the, the tools to produce this. Yeah, that's very concerning. Everything's going this way. And this all comes after COVID. And, and all of this has been just crazy. COVID, then some droughts, and then war happens. And it's just, just a weird situation where everything that could go wrong did. I mean, at one point, you kind of start to believe that uh, back in 2012, I guess, or 2013, there was this news that uh, that a squirrel had gone into a large Hadron Collider and messed up some systems there, and it was supposed to stop for a bit. And now uh, on some conspiracy theory boards, uh, people are stating that, oh, well, this squirrel has dragged us into the worst, most cursed timeline. They might be onto something, to be honest, if we're looking at this. I think, yeah, they're not too far from the truth. Like I was saying before, even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we're already seeing like a global supply chain issues with foodstuffs, but also agricultural and lots of transportation issues. And then, like I said, there was that big um, La Nina, it was like it was called La Nina effect across affecting African Asians, Central Asian countries, and then also Latin American countries. That was already affecting a lot of foodstuffs there. 
And on that bright note, my show's tagline hasn't been as important ever because, you know, happiness is mandatory, I suppose. We're going to have to endure a bunch of difficult times, and uh, I'm pretty sure no one's getting a raise anytime soon. In a large part of the planet, you'll be happy to have a job at all. This is the time where I don't have solutions besides stockpile chickpeas or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't have solutions either. I would just suggest maybe... Read news outside of Ukraine as well. There's lots of things going on in the world, and I think it does a disservice if they, you know, fly under the radar. Like a lot of countries, like Yemen, for instance, need international attention to address these issues. What's happening in one country is definitely going to be felt in our countries in different ways, obviously. But I think that would be my advice at the end of this pretty grim episode. Well, you know, if our grandparents could endure World War One and Two and the Great Depression, then we will have to probably show up and, and you know, endure some stuff ourselves. But yeah, on that note, thank you, Daniela, for this sobering, kind of somber, weird thing to which we don't have solutions to. And yeah, thanks for coming on to the show, and I hope that this actually, you know, makes our listeners think about all the situation. That's okay. Hopefully next time we'll have a bit more positive news. <laughs> in a year's time, we can see where we're at. Well, yeah, you, you definitely have to come on the show more, more often too. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, and that's it for today's episode. I really don't have much to add because this requires you to put on the thinking cap and maybe reevaluate your own attitudes towards the economy and figure out how you're going to proceed in the quite gloomy future. But as always... Happiness is mandatory. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.